and we're reading from the book of First Timothy, chapter 2. We'll read the first seven verses, and this is Paul the Apostle writing to Timothy. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. It's God's word. Well, thanks for reading that passage of scripture for us tonight. Well, let's come to our God in prayer. All right, let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that we can have it read and explained. And I pray tonight that as we look at uh, both these important areas in terms of our reformed understanding of your word on solar Christos, Christ alone, and sola Deo Gloria, glory to God alone, that you would guide us in our understanding and in our application of your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, what, what wonderful singing tonight. The, the, the songs that we sang fits in well with the theme that we are looking at tonight. Two of the big, of the solas uh, that kind of concludes our series this evening. Well, I remember going back to Sri Lanka a few years ago, and I met one of my friends, a long-time friend, was in school. He's a business guy now, and as guys do, the first thing they ask you, well, what are you doing for work? Uh, I said, I'm a minister. He looked at me, what? I'm a minister in a church. Really? What happened to you? <laughs> what happened? Tell me your journey. And uh, we, we got talking, and he's a strong Buddhist guy, business guy, uh, doing well in his business. And I said to him, you know, I came to faith in Jesus Christ, and this is what Jesus means to me, and I'm serving Christ because of what he has done for me. And he looked at me and said, hmm, that's interesting. And why? And I began to explain to him what basically our faith is. And uh, he listened, but of course he went back to his own uh, Buddhist philosophy of thinking, and, and that's fine, but we left it at that. But it was indeed a challenge. Why am I a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Why am I serving? Well, important questions. Maybe you've been asked that question. Why are you a Christian? Well, tonight, as I said, we're going to look at these two areas, Christ alone and Glory to God alone. So we're going to look at, uh, basically I want to give you a brief overview of the Reformation. 
You see, the Reformation was essentially a crisis over which authority should have primacy. The Roman Catholic Church claimed that the church's authority rested with scripture and tradition. We, uh, we learned some of the quiz questions tonight. Scripture and tradition, the Roman Catholic Church. Scripture and the Pope. Scripture and the church councils. But the reformers believed that the authority belonged to scripture alone, sola scriptura. And so spiritual darkness personified the Roman Catholic Church. The Bible was a closed book. Spiritual ignorance ruled the minds of the people. The gospel was perverted. The church tradition was placed above the scriptures. And personal holiness was abandoned. Man-made traditions kind of took over the life of the church. And corruption and ungodliness contaminated both the dogma, that is the teaching, and the practice in the church. And the church was indeed in need of reform. And so the first reformer, and we've been through all of this, I'm not going to go through all of this again. The first reformer was an Augustinian monk by the name of, come on. Hey, that's another quiz question for tonight. Hey? Martin Luther. Exactly, right? Martin Luther. And Luther was a, a law student. And uh, he became an Augustinian monk. And his father was absolutely uh, disappointed with this. In fact, I was reading about the life of Luther this past week. And uh, Luther uh, was a, a highly educated guy. He was a law student, obviously. His father worked very hard to make his son go into law college and to study. And he was expecting that his son, Martin Luther, would be a lawyer, would be earning so much money and etc. But to his father's disappointment, this guy decided to become an Augustinian monk. And so he went into the monastery and he started to examine what it means to really have this relationship with God. And in the monastery, in fact, he deprived himself of a lot of the good things that was available for him. In fact, it is said that he didn't eat so much of food. He, in fact, at one time looked like an absolute skeleton. And in the nights, he wouldn't even take a blanket to cover himself. And he would be there in the cold in order that he might do everything that he could to be made right and to be made acceptable with God. That's the kind of intensity with which Martin Luther lived his life. And so Luther's struggle with guilt, the church's moral failings, and his study of scripture came to a head in 1515. In fact, it is said that while lecturing through the Psalms and Romans that year, as a professor of theology, Luther finally saw that he could be forgiven and that he could find peace with God based on the righteousness of Jesus, which the Lord would credit to him, and therefore he would have to abandon all his attempts to be made right with God. And so in 1517, as we saw tonight uh, in that quiz question, uh, the sale of papal indulgences moved Luther to nail uh, the 95 theses on the, on the door in this church in Wittenberg, in Germany, to the castle church door in Wittenberg. And this document of protest against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church was intended to provoke academic debate. It was intended to cause a debate about the indulgences in the church. 
particularly isolated to Wittenberg. But you know what? You know what? People copied those theses and distributed them to many places. And so before long, Luther's 95 theses went all over the place. And then began that controversy, this bold act by a, by a monk with a mallet. Nailing that. Imagine that, Luther. Anyway, try and picture it. <laughs> right? And here's Luther, and he's there, and he, and, and, and he launched the Reformation. He was one of the most significant figures that God raised up. There's no doubt about that. And so Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 Theses provoked a massive, a massive debate that culminated finally in what we now call Protestant Reformation. And Luther's 95 propositions for reform was the catalyst for the Europe-wide Protestant Reformation. And so Luther became the center of a great controversy after his theses were copied and distributed throughout Europe. And so if you were to crystallize some of the main aspects of Luther's fundamental principles that he fought against and, and he promoted, in fact, you would say, one would say, it was justification by faith, We've seen that. Um, his critique of papal authority, because he took a very strong view against the popes, and John had uh, uh, gone through the, the, the popes at the time. His prioritizing of the word over sacrament. And they all had a tremendous impact upon the church and society at the time, and subsequent generations that were to follow. And this would lead, dear friends, to one of the greatest transformations, and I'll touch on this later, of Western society since the apostles first preached the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Imagine that. And this would lead to such an incredible impact in the, the, the Western world. And God was impacting the world. And he raised this man, Martin Luther. And then subsequently he raised other reformers who came along the way. Um, and we would see that. For example, guys like, I don't know, maybe some of you have read, but certainly if you're in a, in a college, theological college, you would have come across these names, uh, uh, Zwingli, uh, Latimer, uh, this guy Martin Busa, he writes uh, excellent stuff, William Tyndale, you've heard of uh, Tyndale, I'm sure, the other guy is Philip Melanchthon, I hope I got that pronunciation right, uh, John Rogers, uh, we have um, uh, this guy Enrich Bullinger, as well as the last guy, you would have heard of him, right? John Calvin. <laughs> Calvin, that's right. Calvin. Okay, so tonight we are going to conclude our study of the five solas of the Reformation. So we have seen uh, sola scriptura, seen sola gratia, uh, sola fides, sola gratia, sola Christos, and sola deo gloria, which we're going to look at the last two this evening. So sola Christos, in Christ alone. Well, friends, what does it mean? Really, what does it mean? Why? Why Christ alone? Does it really matter? Does it matter? What did the Protestant reformers mean by the slogan, Christ alone? Well, let me approach it this way, so that we understand where this slogan, in fact, fits in uh, with the rest of the slogans that we have seen. Okay, so last Sunday, Ian Campbell, I think he did an excellent job in explaining to us um, when he spoke on the subject of sola fide, faith alone. 
And so, in fact, Martin Luther called justification by faith alone, and we need to keep this in mind, he said this, it is the article upon which the church stands or falls. It is the article upon which the church stands or falls. And if we miss it, we miss an important aspect of what God has done for us in his son, Jesus. Justification means being declared right with God. It is a forensic term. It is a legal term. It is a term that indicates to us that God declares a person right with him. What a tremendous thing that is. We can rejoice in that, can't we? And so the question is, how are sinners made right, justified before God? Well, this was the material cause of the Reformation. Martin Luther and those who followed after him argued that a person is justified, that is made right with God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. Alright? But what we need to understand is, what role does Christ play in our being right with God? Now let me say this. And this is also important for us to consider. When we say we are justified by grace through faith, what that means is that salvation is a gracious gift of God. Right? However, grace does not justify us. Grace does not save us. Think about it. Right? Similarly, when we say that we are justified by grace through faith, that means that faith is the means through which we can get this justification or be made right with God. Again, faith doesn't justify us. What then justifies us? Well, the question is, who justifies us? You see, faith alone, grace alone, the scriptures alone, all of these things, we'll leave the scriptures out for a moment, grace alone, faith alone, will mean nothing, will mean absolutely nothing without the person of Jesus Christ. You see that? It is in Christ alone. You ask the person on the street, they will say, I have faith. Have you noticed the terminology that's been shifted now? The use of terms. We are now called people of faith. Right? And well, we are. But it encompasses all faiths. Uh, for example, if, if, if you do uh, uh, some kind of chaplaincy work and so forth, we have to incorporate all faiths. It's the people of faith. In fact, uh, I think it was uh, in, in the UK when, um, when, when I think Prince Charles described people of faith rather than the faith. Can you see the distinction? Right? Okay, the, 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 the turn uh, in use of terminology. And so this person is Christ. You see, the Catholic Church thought that we are saved by the merits of Christ and the saints plus works. According to the Roman Catholic Church, there are four sacraments which deal with the forgiveness of sins, the cancellation of its punishment. All right, so we look at that. I'm not going to go through all of these things, but just to highlight baptism. So um, baptism, they say it will save you. So if a person has been baptized, salvation, bang, it's there. Uh, I once went for a service, I sat down, 
look, I'm not going to be criticizing the denomination in any shape or form, but I sat at a service, and uh, the, the priest got up and said, uh, this person has been saved because he was baptized. Right? Then there's the Eucharist, what they call the communion. And then there's penance. And then there's the anointing of the sick, what they call an extreme unction. And in Martin Luther's day, the sacrament of penance occupied a central place in the Roman Catholic Church. And at the heart of this sacrament was the priestly act of what they call absolution. That is, the pardoning of sins by a priest. And this was a private confession to a priest in a confession box. Now, we don't actually have one here. Uh, there is no confession box in this place. Nobody comes needs to come and confess to because we are now the priesthood of believers. But uh, certainly at the time a, a person would go, uh, the priest can't see him or her. It's covered. They would say their sins, whatever they have done, and the priest would say something and absolve that person by saying, well, you better go and do either whatever, do a certain number of prayers, uh, pay indulgences, uh, pay for that sin, and I will give you absolution. Man, imagine that. It's a lot of bad business, isn't it? Give me some money and it'll be all right. I'll give you absolution. You're forgiven. We're not going to start that year anyway. <laughs> okay, so uh, that, that, that was one of the key aspects there. And this involved three things from the person confessing his or her sins. It involved contrition of heart, a confession to a priest, and a satisfaction that had to be done. So this satisfaction could take the form of saying a prescribed number of prayers, giving alms to the poor, going on a pilgrimage, indulgences. I remember in Sri Lanka down my street, uh, I lived close to um, uh, some good friends who were very involved in in their particular church. And uh, from time to time, uh, they would distribute Food packets, rice, wrapped in, um, in what they call banana leaves. Have you ever eaten rice uh, wrapped up in banana leaves? Oh, man, it's superb. It's nice, right? And they would distribute these things. They would distribute them to people, and they would send packets to our home as well. And, and the reason for doing that was to give arms so that they could actually earn some kind of merit. Not, not because they wanted to feed the poor. Not because they wanted to do something good for others. But it was gaining points. You see, Luther said no to this. And the reformers said no to this. Why? Because, why Christ alone? That's a good question. Let's come back again to the Why the exclusiveness of Christ? Because the Bible tells us that. And I'll come to that in a moment. We're going to sing in a little, not, not now itself, but at the end of this service. In Christ, in Christ the Lord. Don't get too carried away, okay? We're still not finished here. All right. Um, in, we're going to sing a little while, In Christ the Lord. And uh, I was reading this, and I think Noel sent us an email. Noel sends us lots of emails. Um, but anyway, he sent us one on, in, about Christ alone. And this was, in fact, I read it from the, in, in the Tennessean, in the August 4th uh, uh, paper. It said this. A heated debate stirs over changing lyrics in Christ alone. A committee of the Presbyterian Church USA, that's not the PCA, so don't think about that. The USA, PC USA is a liberal church, has dropped 
in Christ alone from their hymnal because the publisher refuses to allow them to change the lyrics. A committee of the Presbyterian Church USA has dropped the popular hymn in Christ alone from their hymnal because of this reason. It says this, the original lyrics says, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And the Presbyterian Church of USA committee wanted to change that phrase to the love of God was magnified. The love of God was magnified, not the wrath of God being satisfied. Can you see the shift? And the songwriters Stuart Townend and Keith Gary objected to the change, so the committee dropped the song from the hymnal altogether. Well, that's one way of getting rid of a song, isn't it? Just drop it off. You see? Friends, we go back to the scriptures, the scriptures alone. And what do we read in the scriptures? For example, I just took one text. There are so many other texts that one could go with this one. Uh, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, man, the man Christ Jesus. Paul makes this thing absolutely clear. There is a certain exclusivity in this passage. If I was to give an exposition of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, we will be going back right into the Old Testament. Because this is an incredible statement here. It's a powerful statement. A very profound statement here. Because it brings with us the entire Old Testament. Alright, we might just see the statement and say, wow, that's it. But look at it. Look at it. For There is one God. It talks about who our God is. The creator God. The all-sufficient God. The provider God. And, and this God, it tells us that there is one mediator. Now, just think about that for a moment. In the Old Testament, what happened was the priest, they were the mediators. The people took the sacrifices, they put it there on the altar. The priest would go on behalf of the people, do that mediation, and do it all. And, and Paul is bringing that into a climax when he says, that one mediator is Jesus Christ. You see, when Christ died on the cross... Remember what happened to 